Good morning, everyone. I'm going to read from Job chapter 9, continuing our um, series in Job. And this is Job's reply to his friend Bildad, uh, who spoke in chapter 8. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true. But how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. For though I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a mere mortal that I might answer him that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us 
someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands, I cannot. And I'm going to read from the New Testament, from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. morning. My name is Nathan. If this is your first time with us or visiting, then welcome. We are halfway through this series in Job, and today we're up to Job chapter 9. If you have a Bible in front of you, it'd be great to go back to chapter 9. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Um, does anyone recognise this film? The Truman Show. This, uh, this is a story about a man, Truman, there he is, who has lived his whole life believing one thing, and then through this door is the truth. Uh, his whole life he's had no idea that really he's lived inside a massive movie studio with thousands of cameras watching him grow up through childhood into adulthood. Uh, his whole world is fake. His best friend Marlon is really an actor playing Marlon. And when the illusion is broken, he gets into a boat and sails to the end of what he believed was the ocean and gets to this wall, which is the end of the studio. Now, on the inside is his fake world where life was perfect, but through that door is the real world, and he has no idea what to expect. Can you imagine the shock of realising the life you lived was a lie and having everything flipped on its head? This book of Job that we're reading uh, is a story about a man whose life has been flipped upside down. And it's important that we remember it is a story about this man. Job knew God. He knew that, jo that God was good. He knew that God was just. But when everything is taken from Job, his wife, his kids, his possessions, his money and his health, it is a complete shock to his system. And he has to ask the question, is God good? Is God just? Well, today in chapter 9, we are going to stand in Job's shoes and look at the world from his perspective. What is Job seeing? What is Job feeling as he wrestles with this shock? And as we do that, as we view the world from his perspective, ask yourself, do you agree with what Job says? Do you agree with what Job is feeling? Can you believe in a just God? Well, as we come to this word, I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask now that by your spirit, you would help us to understand. Help us to understand the questions that Job asks and how they teach us about you and your character. And Father, we ask that you would show us Jesus. Uh, we do 
do thank you for him, that he died in our place, and that through him we can say these prayers to you. And so we do ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you're following along in the outline on the back of your handout, I'm at point one, the way that Job sees God. Job always knew that God was just, that God would treat people fairly. This is what the friends put to him in chapter 8. Uh, you might remember Bildad and his simple worldview, God does good things for good people. They said to Job, if you declare your innocence before God, he will restore you. In verse 20 of chapter 8, surely God does not reject one who is blameless. But look here how Job responds to his friends. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Job replied, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? See, innocence is a hard thing to prove in the face of God. Every night, we ask our kids to brush their teeth, because that's what parents are supposed to do. And every night, our kids come up to us and say, I'm finished. And I say, prove it. Show me. Show me your teeth. Now, how can a child prove that their teeth are clean? It's quite easy. They open their mouth. Of course, sometimes they prove the opposite, that they actually haven't brushed their teeth. But how, it, it's quite easy for a child to do that. Now, Job knows he's innocent. We as readers know that he's innocent. But what is he supposed to do with that innocence? Can he simply walk up to God and, and show his minty, fresh teeth? Well, no, it's a bit more complicated than that. Job is not feeling confident. His perspective has become depressed. He's lost all confidence in an approachable God. From Job's perspective, God is big God is scary and God is distant. Read from verse 4 with me. God's wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it, he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine, he seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Well, like all the speeches in Job, this speech is poetry. It's designed primarily to convey a feeling. And so if you read this and think, well, God sounds scary and Job seems afraid, then we've got the gist of what Job is saying. But do you notice what Job is doing in the details here? He's describing the way that God interacts with his creation. Have a look at verse 8. He says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Does it remind you of Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the waters below he called seas. Job is using creation language, but Job's put a twist on it. Will you finish this sentence for me? In the beginning, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, normally we talk about God giving light in creation. But look at verse 7. Job says, he speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. In Job's perspective, he is not giving a positive description of God in creation. Why? Because from his perspective, God's actions in the world 
do not reconcile with God's supposedly good character. God is big, but he does not seem kind. Imagine a child crushing snails on a footpath. In the face of such uncaring strength, what is a snail supposed to do? So Job continues, down in verse 14, How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can challenge him? So Job paints this picture of an uncaring God. Can you see the problem at the end of that section with an uncaring God? Job cannot defend himself. Job's friends told him to confess his sin and so God would restore him. But Job is already innocent. There's nothing to confess. His innocence has made no difference to his suffering. And so the problem with an uncaring God is that Job's innocence is meaningless. Do you ever wonder, like Job, if God really cares? You might find common ground with Job in this section. And really it takes us to the heart of Job's perspective. Because if even the innocent suffer, then can God really be called just? Read from verse 21. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Can a God who allows the innocent to suffer be called just? It's a big question. I think there are four options for Job as he seeks to answer it. Firstly, you could say that God is not powerful. Now, people like to throw this suggestion around today, and I think when people say it, I suspect it's mostly theoretical, because if you believe in the God of the Bible, then you do believe he is powerful. Otherwise, you're talking about a completely different God. Job has no doubt that God is powerful, and so he can rule this option out. Secondly, he could say that, well, okay, maybe God is just not real. That's a pretty popular view in our city. Most of our neighbours are ignoring this personal God of the Bible. But Job has no problem believing God is real. He can rule this option out. So thirdly, maybe God is not just. God, Job cannot see any reason for the suffering he's experiencing, for the death of his children, for the chronic pain he is experiencing. He can see no reason for what God is doing right now. And so Job is very close to holding this perspective. But I have a fourth option for Job. Remember, Job's perspective is limited. The fourth option is that Job just hasn't seen God's justice yet. Job only sees his life. He wasn't privy to what God was doing in his throne room in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Job cannot see what's coming up in his future. See, the place where God's justice is truly revealed hasn't happened for Job yet. It's at the cross. 
Job can't see it because it hasn't happened, but you and I, we can look back and see it clearly. God always planned to deal with the wicked and deal with the blameless, and he did it at the cross. But it's not in the way that we might assume. Because at the cross, the blameless one is judged. Jesus died in our place for our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And through the cross, the wicked receive mercy. If you and I confess our sin, as we did this morning, and believe in Jesus' death in our place, we are saved by him and we receive mercy. At the cross, God deals with all the wickedness in the world. And through the cross, God gives mercy. And that's the gospel that Christians believe. So if you ever feel like Job and wonder whether God is good or just, the best way to refresh your perspective is to look back at the cross. See what Jesus has done powerfully for us. We're at point two the way Job sees his situation. Um, Have you ever tried to solve the wrong problem or come up with a solution that doesn't work? Uh, I recently heard about a solution to a problem. Uh, If you smell gas, then lighting a match would make the smell go away. Job needs a solution, but in order for the solution to work, he has to identify the right problem. Interestingly, Job doesn't think that his big problem is suffering. Read with me from verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile, I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. See, what is a bigger problem for Job than his suffering? Job starts this section by saying, well, life is short. Maybe I can just ignore my suffering and and get through it. I can grin and bear it. I can wait till it's over. But that doesn't actually solve his problem. Because Job's problem is not his suffering, but his relationship with God. Do you see at the end of verse 28? I still dread all my sufferings because... I know that you will not hold me innocent. Job's problem is not his suffering, but his relationship with God. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like even in the midst of suffering, that your number one priority would be relationship with God? I recently stepped on a piece of Lego. My kids love playing with Lego. Um, They also love tipping it on the floor probably more than they like building things with it. And I can tell you that when I stepped on that Lego for a good 30 seconds, my number one priority was not my relationship with God. Now, that's a silly illustration, but you get the idea. Job says the reason he dreads his suffering is not because it hurts or because his suffering is hard. It's because in that moment, he doesn't know if he is right with God. He doesn't know if God is happy with him or angry with him. He has no way to tell. There's no relationship there. Now, 
how do you and I experience suffering? Naturally, we want it to end. But in Job 9, the most important comfort that Job wants is right relationship with God, not an end to his suffering. Job would be comforted if he could only prove his innocence before God. So how does he fix that problem? Well, in Job's day, there was one way you could fix that relationship with God. There are ceremonies you could follow, there are sacrifices you could make to try and restore right relationship with God. And that's what he suggests in verse 30. He starts to talk about these ceremonies. Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. See, Job has already done the ceremonial stuff. He's already offered sacrifices. In chapter 1, he even offered them for his own children. But from Job's perspective, this normal fix hasn't worked. And so Job here is all out of options. Job is suffering badly. What he sees and feels and thinks is that God is big, God is scary, God is distant. Job himself is hopeless. He has no assurance of his relationship with God. He's helpless to do anything about it. Job summarizes his perspective in verse 2 right at the beginning. How can a mere mortal prove their innocence before God? And so Job has one more desperate idea. He asks for a mediator, someone to bring him and God together. Read with me from verse 32. God is not a mere mortal that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Imagine God's throne room from Job's perspective. Imagine if you were to stand there before God, in his court, before his overwhelming strength. Could you stand there with confidence? Would you stand there in fear? The Bible is very clear that for all of us, our natural state is at odds with God. Our hearts reject him, our minds are selfish. We stand under this rod of God's judgment. And the Bible says there is no one righteous, no one who seeks God. And it's talking about you and me. And there's no amount of good deeds or good intentions or rituals or ceremonies that could make us good enough or make us acceptable to God. Job was the most blameless man who ever lived, yet here he stands, absolutely terrified at the prospect of standing before God, trying to confess his innocence. Job was the best, and even he is afraid. How would you and I feel standing in that throne room? How can a mere mortal prove their innocence before a massive God? Well, the answer is that you and I can't, but Jesus can. Look again at these verses spoken by Job from 32 to 35. Job doesn't know it yet, but there is one man who does all these things. 
Job laments firstly that God and humans are so different that a person could never directly address God, but Jesus bridges that gap. Look at how uh, Philippians 2 talks about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Jesus is both God and man. He humbles himself to walk among us, face to face. Job could not see God and could not conceive of God having a human image. But you and I, we have seen God in mortal flesh in the person of Jesus. Job asks and Jesus delivers. Secondly, Job asks for mediation someone to go between him and God. Here's how 1 Timothy talks about Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. Tick. Job wants mediation to lead lead to true relationship with God. Here's how 1 Peter talks about Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Job wants his mediator to free him from any fear of God's judgment. Here's how Romans 5 talks about Jesus. We have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Job wishes he could speak confidently before God. Here's how Romans 4 describes the outcome of Jesus' mediation for us. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All this that Job had longs for, Jesus does. It is revealed so clearly to you and I in Scripture. Jesus gives us assurance that you and I, mere mortals, can be in relationship with God. But friends, this assurance also comes with a warning. In history, Jesus went to the cross. And in the future, he will return. And when he does, he will judge. He will deal out God's final justice. We're at point three, the way Jesus brings true perspective. When Jesus returns, he will judge all people. Acts 17 says this, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man Jesus he has appointed. And this is where we zoom out from our perspective and see the fullness of what God is doing in his world. Jesus is coming again to judge. If on that day you have faith in Jesus, you are saved, you will receive eternal life. But if in that day you reject Jesus, you are not saved and you will receive God's final judgment. This judgment event is coming. It's on that horizon. God's given us fair warning. But even though we have that warning in Scripture, you and I can easily forget. Particularly when suffering comes. Suffering can be overwhelming. Suffering can limit our perspective. 
Job is a man who wrestles with this limited perspective. He's trying desperately to reconcile this, his terrible experience with the idea of a good or just God. He has not seen the fullness of God's revelation. He has not seen God's justice and mercy at the cross. He has not met Jesus, the judge, who will deal out God's final justice at the end. And sometimes you and I share Job's limited perspective. As we look around, we see good people suffer. We see the wicked go unpunished. It's easy for us to lose that perspective. It's easy for us to doubt God is good or even doubt that he exists. But we mustn't let suffering limit our perspective. As a church, we need to help one another zoom out and see what God has done. We need to help one another remember what Jesus did at the cross. And we need to remind one another of that God will one day put an end to all suffering on that final day. And so, will you help one another and help me keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and endure? Because in Christ, we have an assurance that Job in this chapter does not have. We have a certain relationship with a just God and certainty of an eternal salvation. I'm going to pray that God might help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for what Jesus did at the cross, that though he was blameless, he died for us, and though we who were wicked receive your mercy. Father, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Help us to remember that we have a sure relationship with you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the end. And Father, by your spirit, would you help us to encourage one another to endure our hardship, to keep our perspective wide, to remember what it is you have done in history and what it is you are doing at the end. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because we have a mediator in Jesus Christ, we can approach the throne of God with confidence, knowing he is on our side. So we're going to sing to that effect. rescued us, freed us from our captors' chains, broke the sea apart, carried us on eagles' wings. With a mighty hand, you have shown your glory, brought us to our land, free to serve your holy name. 